Okay, we have seen that salvation is a crisis that initiates us into a process. Have you got that by now? That when you came to Christ, you still had all the old leaves hanging on you. The miracle is Jesus now lives at our heart. We are a new creation, a new I, a new self. What we have to do now is discover who that new self is. Because up until now we've been trying to find ourselves in all our false and phony faces. What you want me to be, what you want me to be, what I think of myself to be, and so on and so on. And now I've come to Jesus, he resurrects my true self. And I have to come to that true self and know my true self. And at that time the old selves drop off. All the phoniness and the denials and all that I try to pretend I was has got to go. And it does go in his good time and agenda. And so that's what we're doing in this seminar. We're seeing how we are being saved from a world view that we had that was distorted by the lie. We're being saved from all the distorted views that we held about God. Because anything we knew about God before we came to Christ has been distorted by the lie. Whatever you believed about God before you came to Christ, you did think you had to work for him to get his approval. And that was the lie. That's a satanic view of God. We, we have to have our brains turned around, the renewal or the renovating of our mind, so that we now think about ourselves differently, as people made in God's image and loved by him. And I begin to think of you differently, for I see that you are loved, that you are made in God's image, and so on. We're being saved from all the effects of the lie, and specifically the effects of the lie in our personality. The lie as it has been seen by others who, because they believed the lie, they abused us. And so we are people that have been blitzed and shattered and broken by the lie. Now, the lie started in the Garden of Eden. And it has ended up in this year, in the 20th century. How did it get here? How did you end up like you ended up? How, how did it get from there to you? The word in the scripture is iniquity. There's, there's a verse that upsets a lot of people. It is certainly not a verse you want to hang on your wall. <laughs> in Exodus 20 where it says, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Uh, we'd like to put that verse out of the Bible, except there's a, a lot more verses like it. Iniquity has often been confused with sin, as if the word sin means the same as the word iniquity. It doesn't. Iniquity is sin, but it is sin as it releases energy into those who follow me. So when a person sins, that's sin. Iniquity is that sin as it affects my children's 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 children. It is sin as it is an energy that goes on through the bloodline. An energy that causes whole families to be caught up into its effects. The word iniquity means twisted or bent. And so it is sin as to be seen as the energy that can twist and bend a whole family. Have you noticed that there are certain sins that seem to flourish in your family? Has anyone ever said you're just like your father? Has you, anyway, you know, it was your grandfather, he was just like that. It seems to be passed on. 
There's something. Uh, the way I sin, no man sins to himself. That is part of the lie. We think because we're in the darkness that no one's affected by it. Every time we sin, we are passing on an energy into our family. Um, it's something like a relay race. Uh, you know, the baton is passed on one to the other. And, and there's a Smith baton. And, and my great-great-grandfather ha- had a twist on that baton. And when he passed it to my great-grandfather, he twisted it a bit more. And then my grandfather, a bit more. My father, by the time he comes to me, this baton called the Smith life that happens in the Smith clan is twisted and bent in a specific way that is being custom made by my generation. You see, when you look at me, well, no, let's backtrack. When When I would say this, I came to Christ. Well, who is that I that came to Christ? Is the I that came simply that mass of emotions and thoughts and feelings that occurred in that meeting when I came to Christ. No. The I that came to Christ has roots deep. If you want to go back far enough, I go back to Adam. So do you. And so, if you want to go back that far, then I am involved in that shame base that came out of the Garden of Eden. That's why I still act like my father Adam many times. I still want to blame shift and disassociate myself, or grovel in shame, because that's my original family, and it's there. And I know that's not fair, but it's the way the human race is, you see. Supposing your great-grandfather had dropped dead at birth, where would you be today? Okay, they call that the unity of the human race. (laughs) You can't avoid it. Uh, You are involved in Adam, whether you like it or not. But then you see, down through the race, there were many splits off. From Adam, you ended up with the English folk. And, and I mean, I, I'm part Viking. You remember the Vikings? Those pirates and playboys that came across from Denmark and Europe. And they even had a special line in the Church of England prayer book that they prayed every night in ancient England. Lord, deliver us from ghosties and gowlies and things that go bump in the night. And that was the Vikings who went bump in the night. And... I'm the result of a Viking raid. <laughs> they, they, they came and I'm part Viking, if you go back that far. Now, I'm not about to say that desperately affects me today, but I do come. You see, I do come from there, don't I? I don't come from Tulsa. And you see, and that, that's why I think as I do. Do you understand it? I don't think like an American. I've been here a long time, but I still don't think like an American because I've got roots. You see, I go, that's the I that came to Christ. And that I is a mixture of all that stuff, you see. And then in my family, back through my grandparents and great-grandparents, there were certain rejections. Uh, we were a very, uh, what's the word, aristocratic family in London. In, in fact, there's a house in London today, you have to pay a dollar to get in, and that's where my family came from. Only my branch of the family was thrown out because <laughs> of alcoholism. And, and my branch of the family drank themselves into the gutter. And the, the, the awful rejection of that, the abandonment, that's part, I, 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 it's in my family, and it wasn't too long ago. Um, and the, the, these hurts, those unique sins that were picked up back there at Forks in the Road, the griefs that came to the family, the methods by which my family dealt with their hurts. 
It was all picked up by the next generation. It was part of the baton that was passed on. And that was what was given to me, you see. Now, let me say something very clearly. You can underline this in red. In saying what I'm saying, I am not laying blame on my parents or my grandparents and excusing myself for the way I live. My parents are responsible to God for what they did. End of discussion. I am totally responsible to God for the way I react to what they did. I am not responsible for their actions. I'm responsible to God for my actions. So do not interpret anything I say as blaming my parents and saying, poor me. I am responsible, whatever they did. Now, the ideal family, that elusive functioning family, it starts with God. God who is unconditional love. And he fills the mother and the father with unconditional love. And they know him and they know that they're made in his image. They respond to that outside voice that speaks love. They know their identity. And so when Junior comes into the family, Junior is secure. Because he is secure in the parent's security in the love of God. He has an identity because his parents speak his identity as being made in God's image and loved unconditionally by God. He is in a family that has meaning to their existence because they know of whence they come. Out of their fullness, they give to the child unconditional love. And when the child comes of age, the child is ready now to have a direct, immediate knowledge of God who loves unconditionally. That, that's a functioning family. But the fall brings in sin. And the families of the earth have been bent and twisted at the roots. And so for most of us, thank God if it wasn't so, but for most of us, our parents had empty hearts that were not filled with the unconditional love of God. That meant they had pain-filled hearts. And the pain was so intense that they were totally involved in trying to fill the emptiness and anesthetize the pain. And they had no love to give to the child and they wouldn't know how to give it if they had it. In fact, many of them were addicted in order to stop their own pain. They had nothing to give, but they did have something to give. They passed on iniquity. They passed on the twist and the bend that they had received. And you were a little child in such a family. Now, let me tell you something about little children. They do not have editing control. You know what I mean by that? We adults have an edit control. At least if we've grown up in our minds, we do. That means that if you come to me and you really get mad at me and call me nasty names, well, I can edit that. You know, I can say, well, I think they're having a bad day. <laughs> I can, you know, edit a bit. And, and, and therefore, I don't think you really believe what you're saying. But also I can edit out and I can say, I know that that's not true about me. I can clip that out. I'm capable of editing the whole conversation. But a child has no ability to edit. Whatever a child hears in word or action or inference, if it is in terms of abuse, that child interprets that immediately as I'm unlovable, I'm worthless. Do you, do you understand me? 
if there comes to the child, whether it be by word or action, any kind of abuse, whether it be passive abuse or active abuse, the child can't edit that and say, my dad's got a problem. Rather, I interpret that, that I must be unlovable. I must be worthless. And so this now becomes the fuel to the shame that is already there in my background. I came into the arena bearing a basic shame of the whole human race. Are you with me? You understand? I got that from my 444 father Adam. But now they're putting logs on the fire. Now with their abuse, passive and active, they are now fueling my shame. They are causing me to affirm that I am a shame-filled person. They're magnifying it, and I come out of childhood with a load of shame upon my shoulders. And a child that is being shamed, that is a child who is receiving messages that say you are unlovable and unworthy, that child will rapidly learn to react to that by manipulating the situation, lying as we saw in the last hour, doing what he feels will gain some kind of love in a loveless situation. And iniquity has already begun. Uh, have you got the hang of this? When the parent does this, the child reacts like this. And the twist has started. And so the parent sin, the child reacts, and the only way it knows to react is with more sin, only it carries it around. And so the twists, the bend of the human race, begins again in this particular case. Um, what about some of the things I'm talking about? Let's get practical here. Uh, abuse, I don't think I need to identify that too much. We know what that is. I'm talking about physical abuse, when you are beaten unmercifully. I'm talking about verbal abuse. I'm talking about emotional abuse. I'm talking about sexual abuse. And I might say this, that in an audience of this size, there are many of you here who have been physically and emotionally abused, verbally abused, and many, many of you have been sexually abused. And I say that because I know what you feel. You feel you're the only one who is like this. And you feel shame. You say, I want to hide this. I don't want to admit it. And I want you to know there are many, many here. And I believe Jesus will walk into that situation before tonight. But I, all of that brings to that. That's fuel to this fire. That, that adds to the shame. It tells the child you're unlovable. You're not worth knowing. You're only worth beating. Um, an adopted child often feels that their true parents, whoever they are, wherever they are, abandoned them and rejected them. However foolish that may be on the table, seeing as they've been raised by loving parents, yet in their heart they still feel that at some point in time they've been rejected. Did you know that if there was a death of a parent when you were a child, you felt in your little child heart that the parent had um, rejected you, walked out on you by dying? Um, the parents that were absent from home on a job and gone for weeks, many times the little child interprets that, that the, the parent has gone because you're not lovable enough to be around. Um, a divorce, of course, can do that. I hardly need to comment on that. Did you have a parent who was physically present but actually absent? You know what I mean? I remember I was raised in London during the war. And it was traumatic enough. And my father was gone in the war. And I lived all my early childhood being dragged out of 
the crib wrapped in a blanket, thrown in the bomb shelter with the parent flying on top of me and, and laying there where the bombs fell all around us. First thing I learned in kindergarten was how to put on a gas mask and how to identify the missiles. And there, there was no love. There was no love. And, I mean, I do not remember in my entire childhood ever being hugged. I never remember sitting on a parent's lap. I never remember anyone saying they loved me. To us, the nearest you got to any warm, nice feeling was the all-clear siren, which said the air raid's over and you've made it through another one. And that was the warmest feeling you ever had. I came out of the war and we were dirt poor. And so my father had to have three jobs in order to survive. Well, the only time I saw my father was when he was asleep in the chair at night. I never knew my father at all. He wasn't there in my earliest childhood, and then afterwards, he really wasn't there, though he was there. He was just asleep. And I didn't know what love was. My, my heart was a desert and a vacuum sucking for anything you could lay hands on. Um, I'll come back to that maybe. But do you know what I mean by a, a parent who is there but not there? Um, the one who is engrossed in TV. Well, and all you wanted to do was sit beside him or her. And as you come, they, they, they say, go away, can't you see I'm watching TV? And that's all they ever did. Uh, and you never knew them because they were never available there. Can't you see I'm tired? Be quiet. Play somewhere else. Go away. They were there, but they weren't there. And, and of course, all that's interpreted in our little child minds that we're the ones who are unlovable. See, now I can go back and reinterpret my history and understand what was going on in those days of hell on earth in London. But, but then I didn't know all I knew that I wasn't worth holding. My, my skin was crying out to be held. I, I wanted just someone to hold me tight. Uh, I, I didn't know what was going on. And, and the little child doesn't realize all it receives is the messages. You're no good. You're not worth having around. You're unlovable. Was your parent absent from what was so important to you? You're absent from what you were doing so that no interest in your school projects. It didn't matter what you did. How you were honored at school, it was passed over at home. Uh, no one ever praised you for the work you did. They were never there at the important game. Remember how you searched the bleachers because they promised to be there, but they never were. And, and that was all interpreted, you see. I'm unlovable. I'm not worth having around. Were you verbally abused? Someone sticking their face right into your private space and screaming into your face, I, what in the world are we going to do with you? Or to look at you as if you crawled out from under a stone and said, what did I deserve to get you? Or you'll never amount to a thing. Why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be as pretty as your sister? After all we've done for you, look what you've done. Or you'll be the death of me yet. Can you tell me what makes you so stupid? Or if you had the misfortune of being raised in a religious home, Would Jesus be pleased with what you've done? And you make a mental note never to meet this Jesus. 
or God doesn't love naughty little girls. You get the picture? Now, understand me. I say it again, that with no editing controls, those words I've just said, incidentally, I took them from a list of the most used words by parents uh, when they verbally abuse children. Um, and when you hear them, you get the same message. I'm worthless, you see. After all I've done for you, what kind of a worthless person am I that I don't have any gratitude? You know, I, I, I can't edit that. I'm unlovable, I'm no good. And if, if you've been in the religious home, then you feel unlovable to God and you'll never be any good for God. But let me say this, I'm, I am a parent. And parents are driven sometimes beyond all endurance by frustrating, irritating, exasperating children. And you well might have said that sometimes. That's not verbal abuse. Verbal abuse is when you get that thrown at you day after day after day without any positive affirmation. Affirm positively 20 times and then you're allowed to say one of those. But if you say that all the time and just throw in an odd affirmation, that's verbal abuse. Um, were you raised in that religious home, that rigid fundamentalist home? where the father was the dictator, imposing the final and the only way of thinking, where love, the only way you understood love was, it was gained by adhering to the rules. That correct performance. A religious home, I mean, one where there was no mercy for failure. Those cold, harsh homes. Were you taught to despise? Despise everybody of another denomination. Your denomination was the only one right. Were you despising those of another color, those of another race? All that happens in religious homes, tragically. Did you learn denial and hypocrisy from your father who seemed to have another standard than what he preached? And let his friends get off the hook too. See, a religious home brought with it a pervading atmosphere of rejection. You're never good enough. You're forsaken because you can't keep the rules properly. You live in a state of shame and unworth. Forever being asked, what would the neighbors say? You can't do that, what would they say? Until you feel that you're just absolutely worthless. In fact, so many times it finally exploded in your teenage. You said, I'll never be good enough. I'll go to hell instead. And then the parents came to the pastor and said, I don't know what went wrong. They had such a good upbringing. They were raised in religion, not Jesus. And that is abuse. It's religious abuse. And we're the victims. As I read your eyes and hear your hearts, there's many here. and You fitted into those abuses. We see, watch how iniquity functions. All that was the sins of unlove being heaped upon you. Now, how did we react? See, we're going to twist the baton a little bit more. We reacted to that as we came into adulthood. If we had no love as children, there is a craving. It is a longing that has got to be the greatest energy in the human race. A longing for love. We take it anywhere we can get it. I came out of teenage with a craving for love. Looking back in retrospect, a craving to be loved, to, to receive some sense that I'm worth something, I have importance. 
And it's a long story, enough to say that I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit when I was 14. And within four or five days of that, I was preaching my first sermon. I've been preaching ever since. But this is the point. See, we, we would say, wouldn't we, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's the crisis that makes everything right. No, that was the way God began the process of making everything right. It was going to take 17 years before I even began to know what he was doing. Because, you see, when I walked on the platform, I will never forget, when I tell this story, I can feel the sensations I had in my body. When I walked on the platform at 14 years old, my parents were sitting just down there. And for the first time in my life, I felt something that was almost tangible coming up from them and embracing me. They were proud of me. I was important to them. It was the first time I'd felt anything like it. And it wasn't only them, though that was where the energy was coming from. It was coming from all over the place because these were people who knew me as part of the church. And, and, and it was coming from them. He, I know him, you know, he's one of our boys, he's in the youth group. And I felt, if you're a preacher, you know what I mean. Uh, you stand up here and you, you know what the people are thinking about you. And for a 14-year-old who was starving for love, it was coming at me from all over. And all I had done was walk into a pulpit and open my Bible. I was hooked on preaching as much as a wino is hooked on his bottle. From that day, I had my God substitute. It was preaching the gospel. Does that make sense? I had to preach. I went over the whole of England and Ireland, Scotland, Wales, America and Canada. I went, I had to. I couldn't say no. You asked me to preach, I had to say yes. Because that's where I got my sense of identity. You asked me in those days, who are you? And I would have said, I am a preacher. <laughs> See, I identified myself in terms of what I did. Because I didn't know who I was. That's where I got my identity. There are other places. You can cling to your mate. You become a clinger to friends. You don't let them out of your sight. You're terrified they will reject you and abandon you as you already have been over and over again. You go through life having multiple affairs. You just want someone to hold you. Someone to tell you that you're lovable. That you have some worth to you. If you're one of those that has been put down for failure and mistakes, the point where you despise yourself for not being perfect, you now are on a marathon of trying to produce the most perfect work. You're never satisfied. You're never, you don't know what drives you after more and more and more. You're earning money. You're earning money that you don't need and never will need. But you feel you have to prove something. You're trying to prove that all that that you heard as a child was wrong. You are worth something. Look what I'm doing. In fact, many times we, part of that twist that comes out of what was done to us is a, a seeking love in possessions. We're driven to have the latest, the best, usually unneeded stuff, because that becomes our identity. My car is my identity. The neighborhood I live in is my significance, my security. In fact, we even say this. We talk about a fellow and we'll say, how much is he worth? Hear what you just said. You are identifying a man's worth with his bank account? We'll publish it magazines that he's worth so much. Do, do, do you hear what I'm saying now? 
the whole, all of us, we do this, we, we see worth in things and possessions and monies and bank accounts. See, we're craving for importance, we didn't get it. So we're going to get it now, but we're getting it with the twist. What was given to a shame, we're now twisting it. And it's the same thing, it just goes on from there, goes on and on. We seek him significance. I tell you, in many of our churches, they're racked and torn by gossip. What? Well, what is gossip? Gossip is iniquity. See, someone comes to you, and remember, inside you're feeling that you're unlovable and worthless. You're not important. Someone comes to you and says, Now, I haven't told anybody else. Oh, they're going to share it with me. Hey, come on. Why is it that gossip is so delicious? Why is it we're, we're, we're like alcoholics when it comes to gossip? We can't say no. Why? It's feeding, it's craving to be important, significant. And here someone has singled me out of all the inhabitants of the earth. They've singled me out to tell me something that only they know. And now I possess this piece of information. I feel godlike. I have information that nobody else has, except my friends. But I've forgotten about them. Now I'm, I'm the godlike one. Now I will choose. I will decide in my godlike feelings of importance who I will share this piece of information with. Do you see what I mean? I'm not exaggerating there. That's why gossip goes on and rips and tears our society. And this is behind all of our struggle to get God's attention. We will do anything to get God's attention. And we always feel, if only I could pray more, if only I could read my Bible more, if only, if only, then, then I'd be one of God's inside people. We feel so worthless. We think that by performance, that's all part of iniquity. Jesus came into the world not only to deal with sin as such, he came to deal with iniquity. You go through your Bible and see how many times it speaks of Jesus in his death dealing with iniquity. Jesus did not come merely to take away sin in a very vague theological way. He came to take away sin as it has twisted, bent, and blitzed the human race. Iniquity. This is going to be the most important 25 minutes of this seminar. When you realize what has happened to and what God has done with the whole mess that we've got ourselves into. Jesus did not come just to deal with sin in a vague, black kind of way that all those dark, nasty things are gone. He came in a very specific way to deal with the pain and the hurt, the iniquity, the twist that sin has brought upon the race. And he has come to take that in his own body. Did you notice how often it says that in the scripture? Your redemption didn't happen in a never-never land. Your redemption took place in the body of Jesus Christ, specifically on the cross. For why? Because that's where sin happened in you, didn't it? In your body, that's where the pain was. Right here in the body of your mind, in the body of your imagination. 
The body of this, your created self, this is where it took place. And Jesus took our sin and our iniquity into his body on the cross. And what do I mean by that? Well, let me look at it this way. You know why Jesus is called the Lamb of God, don't you? Do you? You know, the lambs of the Old Testament were killed, the blood was shed, and that was the picture. Now, let me ask you this. When the lambs were slain in the Old Testament, the pictures of Jesus, the Lamb of God, when they were slain, it was so humane. The neck of the animal was stretched back. There was a razor-sharp knife that cut the jugular vein. The animal was dead. The blood was shed. There was never any suffering. Did you hear what I said? Then why? When the Lamb of God comes, Really, we talk about his blood being shed, but that was so hardly talked about, really. What we have in the gospel account is of his sufferings leading up to that blood being shed. Why? If Jesus is the Lamb of God, why was his blood not shed in a humane fashion? Are you, you follow my reasoning. Why did Jesus have to suffer? We take this for granted so much. Why did Jesus have to suffer? If the whole issue is his blood being shed, why couldn't that blood be shed even as the lambs by the cutting of the jugular vein? Because Jesus had to literally bear in his body our iniquities, the results and the bending and the twisting of sin. He took your iniquities. Look at it like this. Let me ask another question. Why was Judas allowed into the band of the disciples? I mean, Jesus spent a whole night talking to his father about who should be the disciples. And I believe in anybody's book that means that by dawn the father had okayed 12 names. The father who knew what was in Judas's heart let him slip through the net. The Father allowed Jesus to get the betrayer into the disciple band. I'd say the Father set him up for this. Wouldn't you? And Judas, unfortunately, whenever in the Gospels we read the name Judas, it always says in parentheses, you know, the one who betrayed him. Which, which kind of, we're set against Judas from day one. How do you think he became the treasurer? Hey, pastors, huh? You do not go through the church looking for your betrayer and then say, I'd like you to have the books. Right? The treasurer is always the person that you can trust the most. I suggest to you that the pecking order of disciples, John was number one, we know that. Peter and James followed afterward. Peter, James and John, they're always the first three. I suggest number four was Judas. He was the close, dearest friend of Jesus. So much that Jesus, as the true man that he was, could trust Judas with the books. I also believe, as I understand the New Testament, that Jesus did not know that it was Judas who would betray him. He knew, especially as he approached the end, he knew it more, one would, but he didn't know who it was. And again, it's because we're forever anticipating it in the Gospels, we get the idea that he did know. 
It wasn't until the Last Supper, when the Father gave him a word of wisdom and told him it was Judas. And as he received that, it says he began to be deeply troubled. And the words there mean troubled to the very depth of your being. And he looked at them. Feel the pain as he looks at the twelve men he trusted the most. He says, one of you will betray me. The father has just dropped it and says, this is it. And they were, who is it? And the father has told him, it's Judas, my number one man. In fact, when Jesus spoke of that later in the Greek language, the word used, the Greek word used is divorce. What Jesus went through with Judas was the pain and the anguish of a divorce. His best friend really stabbed him in the back and he really wasn't expecting it from that source. His best friend was ripped from him. And he suffered that. See, we emphasize the physical sufferings. These are the mental sufferings of Jesus. If you have been betrayed by your best friend, if you've had the knife of a friend in your back, if you had gone through a divorce and known its hideous pain, do you understand what I'm saying? That Jesus took in his own body not only the sin but the iniquity. All the hurts and the bends and the breaks of the human race. Jesus knew your divorce pains. Jesus knew the horror of someone's disloyalty to you. He took it. His best friend Peter. Jesus was so close. Uh, I mean, if you could be in the house of the high priest, there was a balcony that was just above, I'd say around seven foot high, just above head level, where Jesus was on that balcony and Peter was just down here warming his hands at the fire. They could see each other. They could hear what was going on. And you know, Peter denies, curses, blasphemes. And do you remember the scripture says, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Cut out all your evangelistic sermons. That's the mental anguish of Jesus. When he, he, Judas has betrayed him. Now his next closest friend curses. And, and, and Jesus had the right to a witness at his trial. And when Annas asked him, what do you say? Jesus asked for that witness. He said, ask those who heard me. John, his dearest friend, was down there beside Peter and heard Jesus ask for somebody who had heard him to come up here and be his witness. And John just kept warming his hands. And John denied him by silence. The mental sufferings of Jesus, if you've been through any of that, I'm trying to show you that Jesus took that in his own body. His death could not be complete until he had taken that kind of pain that you have had. He was verbally abused. Try, try and think of these whole sufferings you now in terms of what we've been talking about, the iniquity. When the soldiers stuck their face right into his face, spat in his face, laughed, leered at him, and said, if you're the son of God, tell me who hit you. In fact, you could put what Peter did under verbal abuse. 
physically abused, beaten. I'm looking at people, and you have been beaten as children. Some of you have been beaten on into adulthood. The body of Jesus was smashed and beaten because he was taking your beatings. He was standing as you and for you, and he was entering into what you've been through and taking it to himself. Do you understand when I say this is the shame that we're talking about? See, you're ashamed of that, aren't you? You're ashamed that you went through that beating. And you felt shamed as you went through it. You're ashamed that you went through a divorce. And you're ashamed by everything that was said at that time. Do you understand now? Jesus took the shame. He took that. Which you would forever disassociate yourself from. He takes that to himself. And he is beaten and his body is bruised until you couldn't recognize his face as a human face. Emotionally abused with Peter and John and the fact they all forsook him and fled. We read those things without ever thinking of the emotions of Jesus. But let me say this. Jesus was sexually abused. You've never seen a picture of the crucifixion. They've all been carefully edited for the West. To crucify a person, they were stripped naked and then hung up naked for everybody to gawk and leer and sneer and laugh. Jesus was stripped naked against his will and hung up naked for everyone to stare. And in any judge's book, that is sexual abuse. There is no person here that has been through the sense of defilement that comes from sexual abuse, that your defilement was not carried in Jesus' body on the cross. Jesus knew in his own experience, in his own body, the defilement and the dirt that comes upon a person who has been thus abused. Taken. See, I want to hide it. I, I, I don't want to tell anybody about it. I'm ashamed and I live in that darkness and out of that darkness comes every cruel and wicked thing that breeds in darkness. And Jesus says, give that darkness to me. And he took your defilement, your sexual abuse, your physical abuse, and everything that's been hurled at you and he took it to himself. Or to put it this way, Jesus spoke of it in terms of a cup that he had to drink. He says, the cup that I drink. What was in that cup that he shrunk from and said, Father, if it be possible, let it pass from me. What was in that cup? The only way I can make sense of that is to imagine that cup of containing all of this. In that cup was your abuse. In that cup was what your uncle did to you. In that cup is what your cousins did to you. In that cup is what your father did when he beat you, almost to unconsciousness. In that cup was all the curses that have been heaped upon you. In that cup was all the disloyalty and stabbings in the back that you've ever known. It was all there and he took that filthy cup that was overflowing with the filth of our iniquities and he took it until the whole filth was drunk to the drop. That's what it means. He himself took it all. Does, does it, it make sense now? Let me read this, and you know this so well. Some of you could repeat it without the Bible. 
but maybe you'll understand it a little bit better now. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed. And we've always said that's physical healing. And we take those two words, the griefs and the sorrows, and we correctly say the Hebrew can also say sicknesses and pains, which I believe. But you don't think the Hebrew doesn't also mean griefs and sorrows. Jesus died bearing not only our physical ills, so that he would one day give us a body without any sickness. But he died bearing our emotional, our abuses that came from the sins of those that were before us. And then he took our contribution to that, the sins that we sinned against, the sin that was sinned against us. He took it all. See, this is the gospel. This is the good, good, good news. That God so loved the world that had voted him out and believed the lie. God so loved the world. He didn't reject us. He joined us. He became flesh and lived among us as an authentic man. And then as a true man, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, he takes into that body that knew no sin every scrap of the hell that we've got ourselves into we bore it away the very things that we are ashamed of he took in his body and that's why the scripture says that he endured the cross ignoring the shame he took our shame but ignored it because he was too busy telling us he loved us enough to take it. And do you realize what that has done? It tells you that you are loved with a love that's beyond my tongue to tell it. And it also tells you that the very things that you are ashamed of, that you've hidden in the basement, that he has brought it out, carried it to the cross. It's out in the light. It's out in the open. And he took it so completely in his body, not ethereally, so I could talk about it in, in vague religious terms. I couldn't point to it and say, see, that's how he took it in his body. And when Jesus went to the grave, he took that with him. And when the stone rolled over that, kiss goodbye to your past. And Jesus rose from the dead to bring you to a new life altogether. A new life that has in it a death point where you can look at what is past and call it the old man and see the chasm of the grave and say, now I'm in the new man. Or I can say that I have been translated out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And what do I do in all of that? I let him have it. And I know there are believers here and you are believers and you are in his kingdom but you'd never let him have it. 
Number one, you've been denying it was even there. Now I'm saying, let it go. Just let him have it. The abuse that you received as a child that you just kept there and it's there and it's there. Uh, uh, yeah, admit it. Let it come into the light. I know it's dirty and you feel defiled. Let me tell you this. Let me speak to that little girl down inside of you that feels so dirty because of what they did to you. Tonight, when I lay hands on people, I am going to impart to those people holy power. And a holy energy is not only going to leave me and go into them, but shall stay with them and shall shape their life. When that filthy, dirty man laid hands on you, he imparted his defilement and his dirt. You are not dirty with sin, you are dirty with his defilement. And I tell you this this morning, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin, and that includes sin you're responsible for and sin that's been dumped on you by somebody else. And you can walk out of this meeting clean, 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 because the blood of Jesus washes back to that little girl and cleanses the sin that was dumped on her by that filthy person and cleanse you from all that came out of the beatings and all that came out of the abuse of words. It's a matter of saying, yeah, it's here. I don't have to excuse it. He's already taken it into the light, out of the basement. And I just own it and say it's mine. And I own it as mine now laid upon Jesus where it belongs. It's out of me. It's gone. And I, I, I think in pictures, and I'm speaking in pictures. Now I know no other way to do it. But out of me comes. And is laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We then turn around and we forgive those who abused us. That will take tonight to explain that. Right now, let's just let this take place. That we acknowledge it and let it go. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to promise. There's no excuses to be made. You're an open book to the eyes of God who delights in you. And he just lifts it as you let it go. And he goes to the cross and it's buried and it's gone. And you walk away to begin to be the new person that you really are. Really are.